Good morning, class. This is Financing New Media Ventures. Uh, your professor, Athul Prashar, with our, we have Michael Smith, CMO of NPR. I'm going to get into the story of how I met Michael. He's just been, doesn't even know it, has been great a great resource for me in my entire career in, in different pockets. I've run into him through a different organization that we belong to uh, and we've been affiliated with. And you're going to have, it's a treat. He's always generous with his time and his knowledge. He's been fantastic about everything. So where do we start? We're going to get into, uh, let's get into your, here's what we'll do. I'll set up what NPR is. We'll jump into your, then I'll give a quick layup as to your background and then you take it from there and then we'll jump into a nice little story of how I met you uh, back in the day. Okay, so NPR Deets and feel free to clear these up whenever you get a chance, um, whenever you feel like it. Um, and just so you know, Michael, I'm actually recording this now. In a bit, I head to the office and then later on tonight is when I actually see my class and we're having another person you and I met through an organization called NAMIC, Sean Gupta. Also, hmm. we met through NAMIC. He's actually speaking in our class tonight about BET Digital and Paramount Plus and all that. So it's going to be whole NAMIC tie-in here. Uh, so it's going to be exciting. So, okay. So NPR has been around for 50 plus years, just over 50 years, right? NPR is a publicly and privately funded company and you'll clean that up for us. So I think back in the 60s, there was a, the president um, wanted public or remain. So PBS was the TV arm, NPR was the radio arm. Can we say that's a terrestrial arm? And then- <laughs> Yeah, well, well, it came out of the Public Broadcasting Act in 1967, which was under President Johnson. And the idea was to you know, allocate some federal funds to create and support a public media ecosystem that would fill the gaps that the commercial media system was not serving, really marginalized voices, stories that weren't being told, you know, educational content, content for kids, content that was really designed to enrich and create just a more informed and better working democracy. And uh, there were a bunch of educational and nonprofit radio stations around the country who really had a need for a national level news show. Uh, basically a daily, their idea, their, the idea was to create a, a, non, a separate nonprofit, which would be like a production company for them and make a daily national news show. And that was called NPR. And NPR began providing content to about 200 different public radio stations around the country. And the first show was called All Things Considered. It was an afternoon news show and then eventually grew into a morning show called Morning Edition and then a bunch of other shows over the years. And the nonprofit has uh, expanded beyond just radio, supplying radio shows to public radio stations to, into being a publisher of digital content like uh, podcasts and uh, web content. And now we're on Instagram and, and uh, TikTok and, and, uh, and, and, and YouTube. So, um, um, uh, but that, that, yeah, that's, that's sort of the history of the organization. My dad turned me on to the radio station. I fell in love with your podcast because that just better suited my lifestyle. And um, I'll get into one that's a daily habit of mine in a moment. And then, so now we're, like you said, you mentioned the 200 now, like, isn't there like 800 radio stations? So I think almost 99% of the U.S. lives within a listening area of an NPR, wherever an, an affiliate or wherever an NPR is carried. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, pretty much anywhere in the United States, there's a public radio station in many markets. There are multiple public radio stations who are what we call NPR, NPR member stations. They are part of the consortium. They carry our programming. Uh, the way our the economics of NPR works is that we get our funding from three different sources, one through the donations that people make to their local station. A portion of that money goes back to the, the national organization to help us fund our content. The second source is we get sort of national flint 
philanthropic support. And then the third piece is we uh, sell sponsorship messages in our content uh, and corporations support us by underwriting our content. And people think, you know, this is a mistake. And myself, even included a couple up until a couple of years ago, because I then I Googled it, uh, that, hey, this is public, this is government funded, federally funded. No, it's like 2% of revenues. And that's not even from the government. It's like from grants that are just kind of, that are written to be endorsed for the program. So it's not that at all what it was initially set out to be because you've grown, the exp- it's incredibly expansive since the jump. So uh, that that's amazing. And what you said, the three revenue premiums, we're going to come back to that, those revenue pillars in a moment. Let me tell you how I met Michael Smith, all right? He's not even going to remember this story. I started sharing it with him a bit ago. And he indirectly got me into venture investing because he kind of, when I sat with him, so I'm a young buck, I'm coming out of B school. I was actually at a hedge fund at the time. And, and I knew that it was like the tight, it was going to hit the Titanic. Uh, I could see the writing on the wall. It was 2009 ish. And we were, you know, going to be suspending operations. That was the term used. We tanked, right? <laughs> so then I, shortly after, near like the two months before we started to kind of hit that iceberg, um, I started, I, a buddy of mine, he, he was big. He was a music executive and we had worked together previously. And he mentioned, Hey, there's a show in Canada called bitch and kitchen. It's a cooking show. It's online only. It's a web series. I think she's an Italian female punk rocker. She was a lead singer for her band. Her fiance was a producer of the show. And, and my buddy, Tom, he said, Hey, why don't we, we should do something with this show. I said, well, guess who I just met Michael Smith, who was at the time, the GM of the cooking channel. And you had just come out of a role, a very senior role at um, Food Network, right? Mm-hmm. And you were at, then went to the Cooking Channel. So I just met you and I emailed you out of the blue and you, you, within like 15, 20 minutes, you responded. I said, oh, wow, this is a, this is a big executive, uh, uh, you know, responding to me this quickly. I said, I'd like to chat with you about a business idea I have around the cooking space. And that's right in your lane. And you're the foremost thought leader in my world right now that, <laughs> in that space. And you welcomed when you open arms. So you, it was funny because it was Chelsea Market at the time. My first time I had been in that building in 2009, 2010, something like that. And you gave these very intricate details of how to find your office because you walk in and it was like, you know, it was, a, it was kind of amazing there if you don't know mm-hmm. where you're going. You said, hey, take a left at the tree. I'm like, wait, that's pretty explicit. And then, but then I found my way to you. It was interesting because we talked for the first, and I don't know if you remember this, I, my whole idea was to go about this show, this web series. But then we ended up talking, we landed on sports somehow. You and I both share a love of sports. I didn't know that about you. We first at that time, it's 2010, we were talking Kobe and Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. I'm from Chicago area, live in New York area now. So, you know, so we were talking about that. Kobe, I'm a big fan, obviously. And then we landed on Nadal. We went to tennis, Nadal, Federer. And then at the time, Djokovic was just coming on the scene. He had he already won a title, I think. In, um, the 2007 Australian Open, yeah, it was his oh, first uh, Grand Slam title. Yeah. <laughs> And I had seen him in 2009 at the U.S. Open. That was the first time I had seen him play, I think, or something around there, like about a year prior to you and I meeting. And then we just sat there and talked about sports. I thought I had about 15 minutes of your time, this high power executive. We ended up talking about sports for about 30, 35 minutes. And then I just felt really comfortable with you. And then we talked about Bitch and Kitchen and you it was already on your radar, the show. You had already been thinking about looking at the show. And, you know, at the time, just for perspectives class, Rachel Ray, I don't even know if you know who she is anymore, but she was a hot commodity at the time on, mm-hmm. on those shows. The, uh, Emerald Lagasse, my, my wife is, loves all these people. She used to them back in the day. And then, so we were thinking, so I, I had a partnership with another company, Clickable TV. Hey, there's a web series, Bitch and Kitchen. We could do a merchandising deal with her. My buddy was into music. I was into music at the time. And we thought there's some music at, there's a music licensing deal we could do there. There's some more. 
so many other things. And with clickable TV, you click on something online, it preloads data. Oh, this pot that not Nadia is using in Bishop Kitchen, you can actually get it here. But then we would be, we weren't reach, we weren't vertically integrated at the time. We were just going to, you're going to click on the pot, travel elsewhere to somewhere else's platform mm-hmm. to, you know, purchase that, purchase that thing. We were ahead of our time. Uh, clickable TV just kind of didn't, it was just too early. And then Amazon came and just captured, you know, on a bunch of these other e-commerce plays. So we landed there, but then me in that conversation with you, we sat there for probably a good hour and it was phenomenal. And you were just very inspirational. I said, I can hang with these kind of folks. Cause I remember I had to grow a beard. No one looked like me in the hedge fund or VC world at the time. I had to grow a beard just to look like I fit in the room, just like Mm -hmm. they thought I was just too young to be there. (laughs) But then they saw me work on some deals. I said, okay, this guy knows this stuff. Let's bring them in. And then they allowed me to play. And you gave me that kind of history. So I appreciate you doing that for me. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 I think you did definitely. It, it, uh, you had an idea that was uh, um, ahead of its time, but, but a great idea. And, and, and many, uh, I think, successful entrepreneurs, you know, that they share that, that, that it's about having seen the future. And, uh, you know, that's something you've been able to do throughout your career. So let's let's get into it. So. NPR, right? You want things and it, you're, I, I love everything about this space. And they're the, it's in my opinion. So I, my, part of my daily habit is up first. I get up in the morning, I'm six, six, 15. I turn that on. I'm listening to it in bed. Wife's already in the shower. I'm in bed uh, listening to that. I'm going through my Twitter feed and then I go while I'm listening to it. And then I'm going through my emails up first is my daily habit. So you have daily habit shows on there. You also have, um, you have weekly habit, you know, weekly shows that are launched mm-hmm. like that. You have two shows that really start up first and, and planet money. I don't know if you remember this show because you have thousands and thousands of shows about planet money on this particular show. They showed how Lucille Ball and Ricky Ricardo, because of their relationship and their love for one another, changed the entire TV and film industry. Because mm-hmm. at that time, that, that's Ricky Ricardo and Lucille Ball were pushing for because they wanted to be together on camera still, mm-hmm. right? After the marriage and people weren't used to that uh, in, in the movie world. So they pushed to, hey, producing outside of the production houses uh, and, you know, like, and then own it, you know, produce not just the film networks and the film houses owning the rights to shows, uh, but then producers, external actors were the, that was the first time an actor had production rights on a show and then was able to, reruns came from that because when Lucille Ball became pregnant, they needed to keep airing shows and they said, well, we have a whole pile of shows here. Let's just run those again. Rerun. So they really changed the industry, their camera angles, multi-camera angles. And I learned that through a Planet Money, which is an NPR show. Absolutely loved it. So it's it's great and it's unbiased. In my opinion, up first, I mentioned it in my class. I can't watch the major news networks because they're really, they pick a side and they drill down. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, I get, I, I get why they do it. I get why, even if you can bring it to the tech world, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, you mentioned why they do this because, you know, well, TikTok's different. Sorry, I should pull them out of that conversation for now. Instagram, they have to go down the rabbit hole. Let's get the data centric around these people and we can force feed data. But then, you know, I want to ask you, let's start here. You can drive someone down a rabbit hole of information, meaning like if I like to talk about subject A all the time, a Facebook or Instagram would feed me that kind of information and then I'll never learn about B, C or D. NPR doesn't do that kind of play. Right. So you're really a, a holistic uh, informational pool. Right. You can go where you want in your thousands of you know, hundreds of shows. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, take that for a minute. And then we're going to kind of jump into some other things. Well, I think it, it, it uh, it's about incentives and how the businesses are you know, set up. I mean, a for, for a for profit business is you know, about maximizing revenue 
and maximizing profits. And so the, the idea of finding a target audience and, and super serving them and getting them to be more and more engaged and, and spend more money with you or you know, to have more engagements so that you can monetize them through advertising, you know, that's what drives, uh, like you, as you mentioned, the social platforms and um, a lot of for-profit media companies. And so it's been strategically smart for them to say, okay, we're going to go after a, you know, a red group or a right-wing group or a left, left-wing audience or, and, and just super serve them. But our, you know, our, um, as a nonprofit, our mission and our reason for being is, is, is totally different from that. You know, it's, it's not about super serving a specific target audience. It's really about serving all of America and really giving people a resource that uh, gives them a, you know, a fact-based, unbiased, just uh, you know, uh, a, a place to really get the, the, the key information they need to just navigate the world better and become just better people, better be more culturally aware and be better participants in a democracy. And, and, uh, and that, uh, you know, is, you know, we're, we're, it's not about clicks and, and uh, growing audience. It's really about being a resource for us. And, and so it's really about the content and uh, how quality it is first. And, and then hopefully, you know, we build it and then we're, we're there for people to come and, and improve themselves through. And I appreciate that about your company because it's, it's easy to, to dial down in a lane and just stay there because then advertisers know how to play with you as well. Right. And yours is kind of agnostic. Hey, we're information first. And how, how has that changed the conversation? Look, so if I look at the radio and you correct me where I'm wrong here, radio NPR plays, this is my father's demo. And, you know, and then we were, that's why I grew up listening to it with him. And then, you know, in WBBM back in Chicago area. And so these are all just news first channels. And so where I'm trying to listen to like at the time, you know, R&B and hip hop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> back then. So radio would be skewing, I'm assuming skewing older. I, if I looked at demos kind of supports that, but you, you'd guide me. And then the podcast, you're gaining a younger audience podcast use listeners tend to be younger, highly educated, um, generally affluent, right? I guess you could say, and you, you tell me how to specs, but then obviously in the radio, you have a lot of that as well, but you have a wider, is it a wider pool of folks listening on them, but then slightly older? Well, I, I think it, it's really about the, the who uses what, which devices. And so traditionally, okay. you, know, uh, you know, radio was, I mean, we, 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 let me take a step back. I mean, we were primarily an audio company and our, you know, our, our edict is to create, you know, high quality audio content that enriches and, you know, inspires and informs people. And I think for most of our history, uh, the way to do that was to deliver the audio content over broadcast radio. And when we started, actually, in the 1970s and 80s, you know, our audience was, was between 30 and 50 years old, uh, people that tend to be more curious, you know, slightly more and slightly more educated. What's happened over time is that, uh, you know, that audience is, has aged and continued to listen on radios. But the next generation of audiences are people that use digital devices. You know, they primarily use their smartphones and, and now smart speakers to consume audio content. Oh, so. Okay. And they don't typically, uh, you know, uh, go for linear, uh, traditional linear broadcast shows. They actually, as you were saying uh, with your uh, first example, they like bite-sized pieces of audio content that are delivered on digital platforms that they can kind of fit into their lifestyle. So we have expanded beyond, you know, just serving the traditional radio broadcast audience who listens in their cars uh, um, to serving people who listen on smartphones. And that's where the podcast uh, you know, part of our uh, company has really grown in terms of creating basically bite-sized 
audio experiences that you can get digitally. And if you think about Up First and versus Morning Edition, which is our traditional radio show, it's a three-hour show. It's got you know several segments within it that you can listen to linearly in a car or on a regular radio. And but in that show, you'll find there are news segments, there are finance segments, there are politics segments, there are culture segments, the variety of segments. But then when you go to the podcast uh, world, what we've done is taken those stories and put them in snackable uh, format formats. So we have a daily pod, um, politics podcast called the politics podcast. We have a daily financial podcast called, as you mentioned, called planet money. We have a daily news one, one in the morning, actually called morning uh, called up first. We have one in the afternoon called consider this. We have a pop culture daily podcast, which uh, we have a science one called shortwave. We have one that's more about lifestyle called life kit. So you can kind of construct that same experience you might've gotten on radio 20 years ago in a three hour show. Now you can kind of uh, do that on demand and, and uh, curate your own experience by listening to the portfolio of daily podcasts that we have. You've done something phenomenal. And I had just come on to know about this very recently. And you've been doing this for years, it seems like. So the tiny desk, I'm a big music fan. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about that. Cause I think I always see, I think we chat about music at one time, but the tiny desk, and these are like to get, garner a younger audience, right? Bring them into the fold. In my opinion, this is what I see. You have Jack mm-hmm. Harlow, Justin Bieber. I think Dua Lipa was on there. Uh, I said, oh, okay. This is an entirely different audience than what I'm listening to on Up First or all th- maybe All Things Considered. And definitely All Things Considered. But if you look at, like, consider this, and it's been a minute, mm-hmm. that might flow directly in line with these, this demo, potentially. You would have more information on that. Well, we, we've, we've always, you know, part of NPR's programming has, has, has always been cultural uh, and uh, artistic programming uh, on the radio. Yeah. We've had shows on the weekend, uh, like Jazz jazz Night in America. But jazz and, versus hip hop, right? So that's, that's that's where I'm going with that one. So jazz has always been a part of NPR's. NPR's yeah, we, we, we've had jazz, we've had, uh, you know, bluegrass and rock and a, a lot of different formats of music at our radio shows. Um, but again, as we realize that younger audiences are consuming more on YouTube and on their smartphones, we've created content that that cultural content that 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 works on those devices. And so Tiny Desk was it came out of NPR Music, which was doing radio shows. Yeah. But the idea was, why don't we you know, do concerts and, and uh, you know, short concerts and put them on YouTube? And then that's where the Tiny Desk idea came from, which is uh, you know, celebrating its, I think it's its 15th anniversary this, um, this year. And uh, as the audience has diversified over time, the music has diversified. When Tiny Desk started, it was a lot of indie and alternative rock. But we, we saw you know, the rise in you know, hip hop is like the largest and most popular music genre in the, in the country. And so you see a lot more of that in Tiny Desk. You see a lot of uh, uh, Latinx music in, in Tiny Desk. You see uh, a lot of world beat music. Music. We really just broaden the the the, the palette of, of of who we feature, and, and the mission of you know behind what we're doing with Tiny Desk is it's a little different than what you would see, I think, on Vivo or traditional music services, where it's about playing the most popular or you know being driven by um, you know, by by views and and like a radio station would be in terms of what's the, 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 the hits. For us, it's really providing a platform and a stage for discovery of new music and for celebration of especially genres and artists who may not be getting the exposure that they deserve. And so we're really proud of how we actually broken a lot of new acts and exposed a lot of uh, you know uh, very creative acts uh, uh, to broader audiences. I think that's why uh, uh, artists respect the, pla- uh, the, sh- the platform so much and, and find it such an honor to be uh, 
uh, on Tiny Desk and do Tiny the Tiny Desk uh, concerts for us. Let me be a business nerd for a second. Then, so Spotify is great at breaking or showcasing music that you might be interested in as well that you haven't maybe listened mm-hmm. to before. But they get to capture a share of that revenue. Let's say you get turned on to this certain artist that they kind of introduced you to, and then they get to get a, a cut of that streaming, right? Yeah. How does NPR share in that uh, in back in your world now? So if you're breaking artists, then it, obviously you can, if they're coming and seeing your YouTube video, then you can, hey, we can sell ads against that. Is there any other way you can kind of capture some gain there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, back to our, you know, being a nonprofit and being a pro-social uh, or socially, you know, driven, social mission driven company, it's really not about figuring out how we can capture revenue or what share we can get, you know, like, like, like if we were a for-profit company for us, it's, right. it's, we're doing a public service to make uh, this art available to people. And so what we do is say to the public that, you know, like a, like a museum or like the, like the Smithsonian or something, you know, if you like what we're doing, then support us by, you know, by, by donating to uh, your local station, which um, the money to the stations, a portion comes back to us or donating, uh, you know, buying our merchandise or attending our events or, you know, or, or just, uh, you know, writing a check to, uh, um, you know, to, to, the, to NPR and its stations as a, as a, you know, as a philanthropic gesture. So, well, you know, our, our model is, you know, do valuable content that, and hopefully convince people that it's valuable enough to support. Uh, yeah. and, uh, so for example, a tiny desk, yeah, we, we don't rev, we don't generate any revenue from tiny desk. It's really just a public service that we offer wow. to, to America. And the costs are written by then, underwritten by then. So the kind of donors and sponsorship uh, yeah, sorts. Yeah. Don't get into exact numbers, but what proportion of it is the direct funding? Because I always hear like, hey, the, you know, not about hitting us up for money in a mm-hmm. sense, right? I get that from a lot of things that I'm, I'm listening to. So, hey, if you don't mind, donate to this. And that's in a lot of different pockets yeah. outside NPR as well. What port, percentage wise, not number, mm-hmm. what percentage is coming directly from listeners like me? Well, if you look at NPR's uh, sources of funding, and, and it's available on our NPR.org website. So, so you know, as a as a as a five hundred one c three, we're very transparent about um, you know where our money comes from. But I, I'd say about a third of our revenue comes from uh, what we call station fees, okay. and and uh, the station fees are derived from donations that people make to stations. So, when you donate to a station, you know, a portion of it goes to the, to support the, the station's own local operations, but a portion of it also comes back to NPR to support our national content operations. So the station's fees is, is a big uh, revenue stream for us. The second revenue stream, probably about this, I'd say similar in size to station fees would be uh, the, the sponsors, the, the companies that you know buy messages on NPR content. You know, by here you'll hear, you'll say, you know, the, this, this show is brought to you, you know, or, or you know, sponsored by, you know, Hulu or sponsored by uh, right. the, you know, AT&T. So uh, that, that's another big revenue source for us. And then uh, a third revenue source is, uh, is philanthropy. Uh, there's, a, we have, there's an NPR foundation that provides funds to us. Uh, we have you know, major donors and other foundations that, uh, that provide support to NPR. Uh, so that's, that, that's another uh, key uh, um, revenue source for us. So I love it. So if you, you, you cut your teeth in advertising early on in your career, and then we went, you stops at the, some of the who's who of networks, right? So Disney scripts, food network, cooking channel, we got into uh, a lot of your shows you've been affiliated with Emmy nominated shows. 
Now you've gone into an audio format. Just uh, how, what are the differences, A, B, and what did they see in you that you would bring here? What's changed since you've been in? So it's been around roughly two years, right? Mm-hmm. I guess almost exactly two years. You got right, April, I think, 2020. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so what have you, what did you see in this role that I, Michael Smith, can change, shake up, and actually bring to this table? What, what was it that you saw in this role? Well, I think the, the one uh, enduring thread, uh, the through line throughout my, my career has been an interest in, in audiences and how audiences consume and who those audiences are. So over time, I've just been very fascinated by the changing technology and how that impacts how audiences consume. So from broadcast to cable to, you know, to now to streaming. And uh, I feel like I've you know, developed a, a, a good sense and in, in a knowledge base on those sort of technology platform trans- transitions. And then the second piece is just understanding audiences of how the, I think one of the biggest trends in audiences in audience change has been just diversity. You know, in 1970, when NPR started, I think 82% of the United States was, was, was white and only 18% was poor people of color. And you, you know, fast forward to today and, you know, it's about 60, 40. And if you look at people under the age of 30, it's about 50, 50. So there's just a, you know, wow. a, a seismic change in, in the, in the, in the difference, you know, and the audience demographics. Uh, so, and that's something that I've always uh, you know, been uh, interested in, 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 uh, in reflecting America and your content. I feel it's not only good socially, but it's just good for business. And when I was at Cooking Channel, that was one of the things that um, was, I think, a, a key ingredient to our success was that we saw that. We saw the diversification of the audience and, and in terms of the, you know, the, the shows and the topics and the foods and the talent, you know, we, I think we were really leaders in diversifying right. the food, the food world, uh, the food, food, food TV. So, um, you know, and NPR was a great, <clears throat> a great fit for me because it's really, uh, and really credit to NPR's new CEO who started just before, just a, just a few months before I did John Lansing, who made his number one priority for NPR to diversify our audience to better reflect and serve America. Because we, we, we realized that over time, you know, our mission has always been to create a more informed and acculturated you know, um, uh, um, America. But when we looked at who we were informing, uh, we really had gotten out of sync with America. You know, um, our radio audience is, you know, older and less diverse than America. And, uh, you know, that's not, Right for a you know for, for a mission driven nonprofit, so we really doubled down on figuring out how to diverse better diversify our audience. And and when I heard that that was NPR's number one priority, it was just it, nice. it just fit with me in terms of where I wanted to go with my career. And I think you know I think for a lot of people who've been in commercial media f- for years, uh, you know, there's always that sort of a little voice inside of you that 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 says. Wouldn't it be great to use the skills that you've developed to do something that you know, has a, a social impact? Yeah. And, and uh, so, so NP, this job at NPR kind of pulls all those threads together. You know, we're, we're, we're really focused on shifting uh, you know, more of our content to, to digital consumption. We're really focused on diversi- diversifying our audience. And, we're, and then we're really focused on, um, uh, on just uh, you know, being... Uh, true to the original mission of, of, of NPR in terms of, and I think it's never been more needed. You think you, you mentioned um, how you know, traditional media companies are becoming very polarized in their, in their content, you know, how there's, you know, there's also, also a big problem on social platforms with misinformation. You know, I, I think especially younger consumers, you know, are kind of 
throwing their hands up and saying, you know, where can I go for <laughs> the truth? You know, I, it's almost, I, I hear anecdotally from young people saying, I've got to listen to Fox News and I got to watch CNN and then I got to watch, you know, read the, I got to read like five or six things and then kind of, de- and then figure it out myself. <laughs> I know this one's- away, you're going to walk away hating yourself after listening to all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you don't really know what's the, what's the truth. You're kind of thinking, well, I guess I have to listen to this one and kind of calibrate it that way and then listen to that one. And so, uh, you know, having a, a resource like NPR is so welcome. And, and our, one of our biggest challenges is just lack of awareness, you know, in the, um, ePoll e- uh, e- does, uh, awareness surveys of, 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 news brands and our awareness is only in the thirties, about 35% of people, when you ask them, have you heard of NPR say they've actually heard of it. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, 60 to 70% of Americans have never even heard of NPR, but when we, put the brand in front of people, especially younger people, they're just, you know, blown away. They're like, really, there's this, there's this brand out here that does content that's, uh, you know, unbiased down the middle, you know, really uh, fact-based. They're just excited by the content. Uh, So our biggest challenge and why it's exciting for me as a chief marketing officer is to build awareness. And, and we, and we finally gotten, you know, the resource support that we need, you know, for years, we've just really had marketing hadn't been a focus. We'd really just used, more word of mouth <laughs> okay. um, and we hadn't actually invested in paid media. And for the okay. first time we're starting to now spend significant amount of money, significant amounts of money on, uh, on advertising. And you're uh, seeing and that return. You're seeing that return. Yeah. We're starting to okay. see the, more people being aware of the brand. We're starting to see, you know, more consumption by uh, younger and, and new users, you know, okay. uh, new consumers. So it's an exciting, exciting time for us. So we have, we have, a, so we have a lot of young students, you know, they're in their, in their MBA program, master's program in my class so finance, media communications folks, uh, all really sharp. They're going to be joined. They're going to be our colleagues soon. Right. And maybe I might be working for one of them at some point. Uh, so there are two, Two questions, a bunch of questions that I've been weaving in from them. So Melissa mm-hmm. and Inquan are two of my students as they tend to share questions that are good. I'll weave this in. What, give me, this kind of was derived from some of their questions too. Give me something, one concrete thing, or one thing that you kind of mentioned, hey, since Michael Smith has been on board, this is one thing that I've kind of ideated and executed upon and I've seen the results on. And it looks like you've kind of touched on a little bit. Hey, we mm-hmm. went deep into spending, uh, market spend. Uh, is there anything else that you can kind of mention that has worked? Because I want to trigger these folks' minds as well so they can go on into the business world and maybe replicate. Well, I think a couple of things. Well, one is just the, our is distilling down what our strategic plan needs to be and uh, and focusing around one core priority, which is to diversify our audience to better reflect and serve America. So then really rallying the company around that. We call that our North Star. And, uh, and you know, I was very involved in the strategic uh, plan development. Uh, and so I'm very, very uh, uh, gratified by uh, how the team was you know, rallied around that. And then the second piece is getting into the execution of that and, and understanding that, uh, you know, growing up, uh, our access and to audiences through digital content is really the way we're going to be able to reach younger and more diverse people and to, you know, again, uh, get alignment around, throughout the company around the priority of digital and, uh, and get the support to start marketing our digital uh, uh, content. And then, you know, we, 
one of the first things I did when we, when we came was you know to work with the team on uh, uh, just paid media campaigns around some of our most popular what we thought would be the, our most popular um, podcasts with the younger and diverse audiences. So, and so we did campaigns around it's been a minute and code switch and louder than a riot and through line uh, and other shows that we thought would really resonate. And we're continuing now that we have a show called the limits with, with, um, you know, ex NBA star, Jay, uh, Jay Williams, which is, uh, you know, you used to play for the bulls for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he's played for the bulls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's got a really interesting podcast where he interviews people who are pushing the limits, um, uh, and breaking b- b- uh, barriers with, through, through their lives. Uh, and, uh, and we have a, you know, a whole, a whole slate of shows coming in the next year or two that are really focused on, uh, on just celebrating and including more diverse and younger voices in, 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 uh, what you hear from NPR. I love it. And then, so I love hearing about these new shows. There's just, you're fitting every, any appetite. It's a buffet of beauty, right? And it's high, highbrow buffet. It's not like, you know, not gonna knock any brand, but like, you know, it's a, it's a highbrow buffet of, of just plethora of information, which is fantastic. Let's get into some of the models that are out there. And I would love to hear your take. So, you know, we, it's well-documented, you know, iPhone, you know, Steve Jobs, pot, iPod podcast kind of came from there, but if and it, a lot of people don't know, Twitter actually wanted to begin as an audio first format. And then it kind of settled on this text-based play, which then Reddit took and like, let's expand beyond these 140 characters mm-hmm. and then go into this Twitter as as well. Uh, Twitter's never captured. They've tried to jump into the space now with spaces to kind of counter what Clubhouse had captured a wave and then they lost that wave. It's, it's It hit the shores and it sank. I know people involved with that group. Uh, and, you know, Twitter tried to acquire them last year and now you could buy them for a fraction of that cost. Mm-hmm. And Twitter spaces is where it is, right? So, and it, it, it's a nice spot. Let's, let's look into some of these models. So Twitter, uh, what they're doing there. New York Times is really trying to aggregate as many eyeballs, but then they have to be an acquisition target at some point as a value play for some large conglomerate, in my opinion. That's mm-hmm. my opinion. Because uh, they bought, you know, the Athletic. My buddy's company, his venture group, wrote the first check into that company, uh, you know, into Athletic. And now they they 40X their money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they returned their phone <laughs> and then some, which is great. Now the Athletic, but then, you know, so they're, they're done with that. So 550 million all cash deal. Nice. That's sweet. But then that's New York Times paid that and they're, you know, they're gen, they're not generating, they're generating quite a bit of money, but that's how do you sustain that model moving forward? Um, I'm going to put that in front of you. CNN Plus just launched. And so their audience skews probably, I'm assuming, older, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, who's watching Fox and CNN and, and then, you, some, you know. And they're going to pay three to, I think it was a $3 lifetime membership, but they didn't even hit the numbers that they wanted to. And I'm not knocking these companies. It's very difficult in this space. I'm just trying to get some clarity around from your vantage point, because you've been, you've launched and you've seen how these things kind of trickle up. What, what is your opinion on some of these companies and how can we, how can we make them whole? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack. I, I, you know, I, I think that there's definitely an audience, uh, out there for quality news content. And, uh, and an audience that's willing to pay for it. There always has been. I mean, you think about daily newspapers, we're always you know, dual revenue stream businesses. People paid a subscription fee or you know, bought, paid for the newspaper. And then they also had advertising revenue as well. And I think in the digital world, um, you know, we it initially was an all ad supported world. And I think it's now getting back to the 
the tradition of where it's two revenue streams. And so the New York Times is, I think, has been one of the most successful at that, yeah. you know, at that evolution to shifting, you know, to a digital subscription business with with, with advertising. Uh, and you know, companies like CNN and television is the same thing. You know, it's a subscription business through cable subscription revenue and then advertising. CNN Plus is an attempt to get into the direct to consumer subscription space because. And they got the challenge of the legacy business, you know, slowly, uh, you know, flattening and starting to erode. And they're going to have to eventually shift to a more direct to consumer model. But, you know, the question is, you know, is that going to be through a standalone service like CNN Plus or is it going to be something you know, bundled into now with this new merger? Is that going to be bundled into HBO Max? Right. And they have to they have to kind of work um work that out and also work out the uh, the transition of. You know, how quickly do you shift content, your most premium content to your streaming service versus you know, preserving your legacy uh, cable services, which are still, you know, huge cash cows. I mean, the revenue, you know, the margins right. on, on cable networks are, you know, 30, 40 percent. So yeah. you don't want to just burn the boats, you know, right too soon. Yep. So um, so it's a gradual process for them. So. So I think, you know, you know, there's, you know, obviously all the hype people are saying, oh, CNN Plus is doing well, or this is, but it's, it's a long game. And people forget that, uh, I remember when uh, Food Network started and, and HGTV back in the early day, day or even be, before I, my first job, you know, in cable was at Disney Channel. And, you know, that was, you know, Disney Channel started in the 1980s, you know, <laughs> and uh, and it was small, you know, yeah. and, and Food Network when we started, you know, we, we had, we, it, it, people think of it as a super successful cable network, but they forget it's we launched in 1993 and it wasn't until about maybe 99, 2000 that we were even profitable. Okay. And it wasn't until about 2004, 2005, when, you know, Guy Fieri launched and Rachel Ray was in her, you know, height that we yeah. really were even like a top 20 cable network, you know? So it was, a if you were an investor, uh, you know, in that business, you would have, you know, it taken you 12 years before it finally started to, uh, you know, to blossom. And now, you know, then, then you would have 15 years of the, you know, 05 to today of huge cash flow success. So these are, you know, these are long, long-term bets. It's, it's funny. It's almost like what the Kardashians were to E and now they're on Hulu. I know uh, Guy Ferrari is to Food Network. He seems to be on all the time. Right? My wife will turn it on, and she, he's on all the time. Uh, so good for him. He caught an eighty million dollar bag. I know just recently, uh, and you know to renew his contract. And good for him. I mean that that's awesome. Uh, no, but again, it was you know it wasn't an overnight success. I mean absolutely. Guy Ferrari was he was a contestant in in our first. It was actually the second season of our, we created a reality show called Food Network Star I know in 2004. <laughs> and it was our first investment in the reality space as, as a cooking you know, uh, based network. And then the second season, he was one of the contestants and he won the, the, you know, the show. And his first series was a, a very inexpensively produced you know, travel series that we, I think we did eight episodes the first batch okay and, and um 17 years ago and then it just grew and grew and grew and you know and then obviously like now you mentioned you know, he's a, you know the show is super his shows are super popular and then the, and the, and and the money's really big and i remember this one lady she would say me she was just she had like this blunt way of saying me right and and she had spiky blonde hair and she's another person that had a show for a little bit kind of like guy ferrari the female like you know they both have the same kind of hair and you know what i'm talking about oh you're talking about ann burrell 
Uh, sure. I don't know. Yeah. I, can't, I don't remember her name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. And she, and she would say me and she would like <laughs> grunt it out. And I was like, well, that's kind of, you know, <laughs> but my, you know, and now we see her around there. Cause my wife will literally on Saturday mornings, turn it on. Uh, when we get to it, it we, we teeter that and my young boys were trying to get them to watch different strokes on Amazon. Like yeah. something I grew up with. So, and I love it. Uh, so we kind of teeter between those two shows, uh, those two, those two readers. Okay. That's, that's awesome. Now let's go into, so, Okay. Uh, you had stints there. So if we look at, so see when Disney, you mentioned Disney kind of maybe struggled initially out the gate, Food Network did a little bit, but then now there are just so many more options than even back then, right? This is 20 years later, 30 mm-hmm. years later, in many cases, it's very difficult to get folks to catch on. So it is, is it mainly based around the brand personality, personality brand? Like you get an Anderson Cooper to go do a thing. They, they, uh, CNN plus, I'm going back to them now. He had, uh, Scott Galloway has a show there and he's a very eccentric personality mm-hmm. and I appreciate what he's doing. He's actually in your lane, marketing, market from that world and talks mm-hmm. about finance. Um, I'm, you know, uh, and then who's the other gentleman they took from Fo- Wallace. They took from Fox. Oh, from Chris Wallace. Yeah. Chris Wallace. Yeah. And obviously his, the lineage there is amazing. And, and he's a fantastic reporter as well. Is it, it's personality driven news that you go for. And that's what, is that the bankable aspect from a streaming perspective? I'm looking from an investor's perspective now. Um, well, I think, I think in, in TV and the, you know, this goes back, I think uh, people should watch the, the, the um, mini series, the loudest voice, I think it's called the loudest voice in the room. It was the bio um, mini series about uh, Roger Ailes and Fox and Fox news. Oh, yes. And I think he, he was such a visionary in the sense of understanding that, um, you know, as pe- technology allows people to get news headlines and sort of just basic news information, you know, on their smartphones and on Twitter. And, you know, you don't need to go to a television network to find out, you know, what's there, you know, about breaking news things or what, you know, what's going on day to day in the world. Um, what you know, people were using cable TV for was more, almost more like entertainment in a way to just hear people talk about the news. Okay. And be entertained by the opinions um, about the news. And so, you know, Fox started with, you know, with, you know, it goes back to Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and, you know, and Greta Van Susteren and coming up with a, line, a lineup of almost learning from radio, you know, from talk radio from in Rush Limbaugh, getting very entertaining, engaging, opinionated people to talk about the news for, the, for, for hours. And, uh, and I built Fox News, and then I think you know, um, MSNBC has you know has followed that that model as well. Yeah, and then CNN with, as you mentioned, Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon, and so it's really what you're seeing is talk radio on TV is what cable news is, and so it is about these you know DJs or these hosts <laughs> doing uh, you know, giving their opinions on the news, and uh, and yeah, and that's a very you know popular genre of, of television. Now you know is it uh, you know is it really the the key place to go to get information you know i'm not sure it is um uh you know that's why we you know we, we kind of play a different game you know in the audio space we really are a place to get the to get the information and you know we, we don't just uh, you know have talking heads sitting around talking about the information what we do is we have reporters and journalists you know getting the story, getting the information for you. And that's usually through interviews and, you know, first person reporting with experts. If you listen to NPR, it's typically a reporter talking to somebody who's an expert on the Ukraine or talking to yeah. somebody who's an expert on, on, on climate change or on COVID and giving the, and bringing that information to you. 
and then letting you make up your mind and figure out what you want to do with that information rather than having, you know, two or three people on a screen yelling at each other about <laughs> whether or not, you know, um, um, you know, Biden should get it, you know, should, should be reelected. You know? You're right. W- work with me here for a little bit. I'm going to set up, I'm going to tee something up and I want you to kind of run with this. So I'm looking at, it seems okay. There was radio and then, you know, people used to gather around the radio station, you know, 40s, 50s, you know, the 30s, 40s, I guess, and then listen to serials, crime, mm. drama, true drama like that. Then TV came and changed the game. Obviously, there's a visual aspect. We, in a sense, are not going back. So, you know, very popular in podcasts. I don't listen to these, but like crime dramas, <clears throat> all kinds of serials, let's say. Yeah. So, Wondery, and they used to have Wondery, Hernan Lopez, they acquired by Amazon, I think. Two two twenty five mil a couple maybe last year a year prior yeah. and I was listening to them that's what got me into podcast business wars they had this series on there and it's just they go through let's say um, Facebook versus whoever Snapchat or whatever it was at the time they'll go through a whole like eight part series mm-hmm. you're seeing these now wondering what they were good about doing they did the whole the section that I did not listen to but those crime series the true drama all that yeah. their their intent was put these out there, garner an audience. Let's flip these into visual, a film or TV series at some point, which is why Amazon was a perfect act was, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. get under that umbrella was perfect. Amazon prime. They can do this now. They've bought for 200 mil. That's a drop in the bucket. And then we can flip these into other content, multi-purpose channels. You're seeing that happen a lot now. So we're, you know, we're going back now. Let's, you know, it was visual uh, uh, stolen, you know, mm-hmm. visual took the medium and then, you know, film TV. And now we are back. Now, sometimes we're OK with listening to a serial with no visuals on our phones through mm-hmm. the podcast format. Is Are you seeing something like so it, it looks like are, is NPR doing like the scripted type of programming? I don't, I don't know if they are. I, I, yeah. No, no I, I don't think that's something that, that that we would get into. I mean, you know, I think what we're um you know, mainly about is about news and information and, uh, and you know, and, and cultural content that's very informative. Um, that's kind of what our, you know, charter and mission is to provide. But, but speaking more broadly about the podcast space, yeah, I think you'll see a continued evolution to um, where podcasting will include uh, the full range of genres or content genres and formats that you see in bit in visual uh, in video. Yeah. And, and I think it, it's not surprising because if you go back to the early days of television, you know, early television was more informational and uh, and you know people uh, you know there were live game shows and you know um, a lot of mostly nonfiction content because it's. When you start a medium, that's the least expensive kind of content to produce is, you know, get a, get a camera or, yeah. or in the podcast world, get a, get a microphone and have people, just a couple of people talk. Yep. Um, and, you, know, um, you need some, you need a relative level of scale in the business for people to see the value in investing in scripted content, which is more expensive. Right. You need writers, you need actors, you need editing, you need music, you need more production. And right. podcasting at first, there just wasn't the scale in terms of listening or ad revenue to make it uh, economically uh, smart to do that. Um, the first scripted or the first sort of story format, as you mentioned, is more true crime, because at least then yeah. you have a story. It's true. So you don't have to write a script. <laughs> um but you can but you can build storytelling elements. And so I think Wondery, as you said, has is, is, is done a good job at that. But now you're starting to see companies and you're starting to see investment in the next wave, which is full scripted content where you have actors and, and scripts and you see companies uh, like Realm uh, and, uh, and, and, and others um, you know, from the Hollywood space 
getting involved in, uh, in, in what's called fiction podcasting. Right. And, 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 uh, I'm pretty, I'm very bullish on, on, on the, the feature of, of, of fiction podcasting, because I, I think that, you know, podcast listening is still less than 50% of Americans even listen to podcasts. So, yeah. so, so it's still a lot of, we're still in the early, like the second inning of, of, of this. And as more people come in and you know, initially podcasting was mainly young men listening to other young men talk about tech. Um, okay. If you go back to the earliest podcasts and the, you know, after the iPhone came out and now women are getting in, are becoming, you know, are listening more. And so you see like rom-com, you know, podcast scripted rom-coms coming into the space and just a fuller range of, of content um, or kids content being yeah. created. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think you're going to see more investment in uh, 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 in both, I think, on, on the venture side supporting startups that get into some of these new genres and then yeah. you'll see bigger players like the spotify's and the amazon's buying up some of these smaller production companies that are in these new spaces and i'm, and I'm looking into the space and that's where i'm kind of trying to take this conversation to from an investment standpoint if i'm looking i'd, I'd get behind a lot of different type forms of content i have not yet as far as by my, aside from putting on my own podcast i have not invested in other people's podcasts with the intent of hey let's take this somewhere beyond here I've looked into acquiring about five podcasts mm -hmm. at one point, then aggregating, hey, we have these eyeball, well, list ears, I yeah. guess, and we're going to take those to advertisers and say, this is what we have. And I knew some people that would have, they would have acquired that entire proposition, just didn't get it done. That was on me. So I'm seeing if this market's going to be, let's say, 100 billion, they're saying by 2027, 2028, is the general intention for some of these folks who are putting out these true crime, rom-com true crime rom-com type of serials mm -hmm. are they is it to hey let's remain on this audio platform or is there a longer play let's get them let's get the dual play the visual play let's develop these into shows we're already doing the writing cinematography yeah. is already there from an audio perspective is that the intent you think yeah yeah i think i think there's a there's sort of a three-legged revenue stool for for a podcast studio if, if you, you know if you're starting one up you're gonna you're gonna have revenue from advertising based on you know the amount of listening and downloads you, you get you're gonna there's an emerging market in subscriptions you know apple launched subscriptions yeah. last year spotify launched subscriptions you know there've been products uh uh around you know you know wondery has a wondery plus so I think that's going to be a new revenue stream where people, you know, start to kind of Netflix style pay for podcasts. And then the third piece is, as you mentioned, film and TV adaptations of the IP. Um, I don't, I don't, the film and TV part, you know, it's, 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 it's tricky because it's a very competitive market. I mean, yes, you, if you have a podcast hit, can you sell it to a Netflix or to a studio? Yeah, maybe, but you got to remember that there's also other people just, you know, going directly to them with scripts already. Sure. <laughs> so, sure. you know, so, so you can't count on that as your primary revenue stream, but it's definitely an opportunity um, uh, um, for people. I, I think the biggest thing is to say, uh, you know, as listeners become more uh, familiar and, and more engaged in the space, uh, and again, it goes back to, you know, the innovation of the smartphone. And I think these, these ear, the, the ear pods have been the thing where, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, people didn't just walk around all day long with yeah. things in their ears, yeah. you know, listening to audio. Absolutely. They listened in their car and they listened on a radio. Now it's the habit that, you know, it's, it's not even, I remember when I was like, younger, it would have been really odd or nerdy to walk around with headphones. And now I see kids on the subway or everywhere oh, yeah. with them, with, with like real full headphones. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, but, um, so people are consuming audio more than ever. 
And spoken word audio has mm. uh, is the fastest growing segment. You know, out it pacing. You know, it's growing fast. It's small relative to music listening, but it's growing faster than music listening. So as more people yeah. listen to spoken word, as you mentioned, this hundred billion dollar market, there's this huge. Uh, opportunity for a diversity of content. You know, it, initially it was Joe Rogan, you know, inter- what we're doing, you know, interview yeah. stuff. But I think you're going to see so many different kinds of creative formats, uh, you know, scripted, uh, scripted content, you know, maybe game shows, you know, interactive content uh, in, in the audio space. And I think that's, that's interesting. Uh, that's okay. where the excitement is. Mean, let let's, pick, let's piggyback on that. Because you'll see in maybe some other countries, if they're, they're, their version of National Public Radio, what are they doing that maybe we haven't adopted here yet that we could bring to this market? Maybe game shows, one of them. I could see that there's probably some sort of I'm, I'm, I'm South Asian. I'm, there's probably some Asian format of a game show on a podcast, I'm assuming, because we kind of mm. get involved with every little thing. <laughs> um, what, what is something that's being done elsewhere that could be brought here to this market that would be, you think, from your CMO hat? Yeah, I, I, I look at it uh, as saying, you know, look at um, and look at other formats, other platforms. So look at video and say, you know, video, you've got everything from, you know, sports sporting events and uh, award shows and game shows and movies and uh, you know, all the different kind of things that people can do in video. Oh, are we doing that in audio? And uh, what are the places like, you know, we don't do just, you know, from my own background, because I come from the food world, you know, have, you know, we've got hugely successful food content uh, in video with food network and cooking channel, you know, that food hasn't really become that big in podcasting yet. How would you translate that? Because it is a very visual medium, but then we think that about a lot of things. And then true crime rom-com is, could be considered a visual medium that works well on this serial, this audio only format. So there could be a play there. Yeah. Well, the other thing about it is there's a certain intimacy to audio storytelling. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's a certain, experience that you have yeah although you don't have the visuals there's something emotionally con- uh connective about uh you know audio in your ears you know because maybe it goes back to when we're you know just growing up as kids and people just talking to us as a baby you know but there, there, it, it, there's something unique about uh the audio medium and, and just sort of the, the they call it, you know the theater of the mind uh experience and so i, I think that that's creates a lot of opportunities for create for creatives uh, to really push the medium. And yeah, again, I, I'm just excited about that next frontier beyond just the chat um, show to what's, what's the next kind of audio experience. I mean, one of the things you know, that, that NP, uh, I think we're proud of at NPR is that we've always, at least in the information medium uh, or genre, have always pushed the envelope. If you listen to the shows on NPR, you know, we seldom just do a straight uh, one-on-one just people chatting kind of show. You know, our shows are pretty carefully crafted and edited and with sound design and music. And, you know, we go out into the field and interview and get, you know, original audio um, uh, uh, material and, you know, fold that all into an experience. Yeah. Uh, And uh, so uh, I think you'll see, you know, hopefully we'll see more creative innovation across all kinds of formats. We'll, We'll end on the last two points here. So, you know, I have a lot of young folks in my class and they're, you know, metaverse is coming web three. Is there, is that even on your radar right now from an NPR perspective, what we could do there, what you could do there? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that uh, the web three is, is, uh, 
you know, there's so many different definitions of what it is. I, I guess sure. it's sort of, I guess yeah. the, the clearest definition is we know what, what, web, what web one was, which was, you know, people just reading web pages. We know what web two was, which is, I guess, big platforms, you know, sharing you know, e-commerce e and sharing your and data platform and yeah. data you know, and everything. And then web three, I guess, is whatever's next. <laughs> and it, sure. and so, so what is that is, you know, I guess it's, it's decentralized, it's blockchain based. If you, if you yeah. drill it down to, Hey, we yeah. own our own brands versus, Hey, we owned our brands, but on Facebook or Instagram and web two, and yeah. then now we'll be tech, uh, supposedly we'll be owning our own brands entirely on this as a decentralized play. It gets scary as well. You could go down rabbit holes and do some weird things, right? Uh, in a decentralized world. So do you- Yeah, I'm just not sure that, you know, it's proven that the that, that we, the tech is there yet. Not yet. You know, not you, know, well, you know, that the blockchain really can operate at the speed and latency that, that would allow this to really all materialize yet. I think it, okay. it will. I'm sure people said that about Web1 in the 1960s. You know, they, yeah. they, they dreamed about, you know, interconnected computers and people laughed at them, but you know, all these technological innovations in the seventies and eighties made it possible. So right. I, I, I think it's, you know, 10 to 20 years away. So okay. from our yeah, point, of, so from our point of view, there's, it doesn't play that much into our, not yet. It's, it's too far off. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, our, our, our philosophy is that, you know, what, our role in society will never change in terms of being a resource that, that informs and inspires and empowers people, um, you know, through, through, through audio and the, well, as the platforms and the, the, the technologies and how that's experienced changes, then, you know, we will, we'll, they'll create opportunities for us as, as, as you've seen, you know, we, I think we, you know, we did it, we, we've done it well and, in broadcast radio and then mm -hmm. um, on-demand audio technologies have, have emerged. And then we've yeah. figured out how to do that, which is why we're you know, so, so, so successful in podcasting. And now, you know, the, the, actually the definition of podcasting is evolving. Uh, you look at YouTube is, I think I saw some data that said YouTube is like the number three platform for podcast consumption behind, yeah. uh, behind <laughs> Apple and Spotify. And, uh, and when we talk to uh, younger consumers, um, they don't see a distinction between uh, it, like the conversation you and I are having um, being a podcast. And then if you showed the video of it, they would still think that's a podcast. Yeah. So to them, yeah. it's just any sort of short form informational thing <laughs> that's visual. Well, to turn this into a movie, you have to do some song and dance in a minute. I haven't asked you that yet. So just to make it more entertaining. But, no, but, yeah, but, I agree. but I would say that to say that YouTube sees themselves as becoming a big po podcast platform yes. and, and, and the podcast being a variety of expressions. It could be just audio. It could be audio with text. It could be audio with, with, the video of the people talking, it could be produced video on top, but it's just, you know, short form on demand yeah. content. Uh, um, you know, is TikTok, a, is a TikTok video a podcast? Is it a video? Is it, it's all sort of blurring together. Yeah. All I know is they're crushing the game. It's a scary. <laughs> Here we are 12 years later, 10 years later, you and I had this conversation, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, give me who, who's your, who's your, uh, I don't want to say go because we had this conversation back then, but then, you know, it's shifted. I maybe in my mind, who's, who's your go? I'm not going to go to basketball because you know where I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> uh, but wh where, where do you land on that? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think my general take on goats is that, you know, it's all, it's at any given moment with, with and for every generation, because how can you say who the goat was? 40 I'm sorry. Years of ago? these three, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're completely be, right. Cause there's be, that. Yeah. 
for what well, because it, 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 you're always going to be biased by what you saw and what you experienced. You know, if I was 90 years old and I happened to live during the time of Rod Laver, I would have, and I never saw Rod Laver play live. So I, it's hard for me to, I watch him on YouTube sometimes and I think, oh, that's pretty amazing. But I never saw, you know, a match yeah. live. But so to, for my own generation, yeah, which is like you mentioned, those three players, I get, you know, I guess at this moment, you'd have to get, put Nadal at the top because he's got the most Grand Slam titles at 21. Yeah. Um, he's got, you know, nobody else has won 13 of any single Grand Slam like he's done at the French. And then he's, um, he's won multiple uh, I guess the only thing that he hasn't done is he, he's he, with the Australian Open. He's, he's won multiple yeah. uh, of all four Grand Slams. So, and, so and they so kept I, thinking yeah. about Federer that hey, he is. But then I thought, he, how is he going to be? They kept saying giving him the gold label. I said, well, he, but Nadal regularly beats him in his current day, right? I mean, yeah. you know. So I said, how are we? Do, how are we assigning that? Djokovic might have more titles at the end of the day. Who knows? Because his body's holding up a little better than the other two, right? Uh, so let, let's see. Let's see. Um, I always give Nadal that Michael Jordan assassin type of personality. He doesn't yeah. smile. He just goes out there to crush. Right? <laughs> Frederick is a little bit more like I would put him in the Kobe Wayne and then I would put Djokovic in the LeBron like he's happy to be there. Oh, he wins too once in a while. You know, right. But Djokovic might end up winning more titles, you know, which it's an individual sport. So then if he's won the most titles, then you have to kind of, I guess, say, okay, yeah, he's, uh, you could put it, give him that title. But let's see how it all shakes up. I, I just love, Nadal's an assassin. And I just saw that when growing up in Michael Jordan, watching him play mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant, a little bit of that after him. He's ha- he has that just, I'm going to win this game regardless. My body might go to hell, but I'm going to win this game. <laughs> right. So I love that about him. Yeah. I think there, I think where we've just been treated, uh, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a tennis fan to just a unique moment of having three amazing uh, yeah. historic players at the same time, which has really never happened and probably won't happen again for a long time. So I kind of um, want a U.S. men's guy to step up because uh, we've had women. Uh, luckily, we've been fortunate on the U.S. side. Now that's kind of getting quiet a bit as well as some of them mature. And then the younger ones haven't taken the torch yet. Uh, you know, but let's hope. Uh, but it's needs some men on the men's side. I want to get that back. Like the Agassi Sampras days, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be a long time off because I think they're just, and again, this is sort of the, going back to you know, the, our sort of meta topic we've been talking about with media. To me, the biggest, you know, like I always say, the two biggest trends in the world in media are you know, the, the impact of technology and how people consume, consume and engage with media. And then the second thing is just the diversification of the, the world. And I think what you're seeing back to tennis is that uh, you're going to see, I don't think you'll ever see any country dominate the way the you know, U.S. players did in the 1980s or, uh, because there's just more diversity in the world. You have people yeah. playing tennis in, you know, in Mali, you know, Mali or in Greece. Or, so you're just going to see a lot of and we're seeing it. And we see the first, you know, we have the first number one Polish female player, you know, yep. in, yep. in the you know, Switek. So I think you're just going to see more countries because as now. The world is just more connected, more inclusive. If you were a little, you know, kid in uh, a country that you know, never had tennis before, now it does, and you're you're out there hitting balls and practicing. The proper and you, training and facilities are accessible, yeah. right? Which is yeah. what was the hurdle for a lot of countries, right? Uh, yeah. Before this has been fantastic, Michael. It's always a joy to chat with you, and I learned so much, and I, as I know my class did here as well. I would have loved to have had you in class. We couldn't work it out at your schedule and our schedules were just so wrapped up. And then you, you, we all the vacations and all this. So, but it would have been awesome to have you in class, but this is the next best thing. And then next, next semester, we'll get you in hopefully in front of everyone. Cause I know they'd have, a, they would, it'd be a treat for them all. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> Thank you okay. for this. All right. Well, it. Thank you for having me. Yep. <laughs>